This is episode 30 of the Equestrian Author Spotlight podcast. I'm Carly Cade, and today I'm interviewing Julie Campbell, pen name J.A. Campbell. When Julie is not riding, she's often out riding horses or working sheep with her dogs. She lives in Colorado with a handful of cats, some sheep, Kira and Bran, her border collies, and her endurance horses, Triska and Cavalier, and her Irish sailor. She is the author of many vampire and ghost hunting dog stories, the Tales of the Traveler series, and many other young adult books. Her passions include horses, writing about horses, dogs, and writing about dogs. She writes fantasy, sci-fi, horror, and all related genres. She is a member of the Horse Writers Association and Science Fiction Writers of America. Now, let's get into the interview. Welcome to the Equestrian Author Spotlight Podcast, a podcast featuring interviews with equestrian authors who love all things horses and writing about them. In each episode, you'll hear inspirational stories from horse book authors, including writing advice and marketing tips to help you write your very own horse book. If you're an author, aspire to be an author, or simply love horse books, then you are in the right place. I'm your host, Carly Cade and creative writing makes my spurs jingle. Hi everyone, welcome to the Equestrian Author Spotlight Show. I'm Carly Cade and today I'm so excited to have fellow author J.A. Campbell, also known as Julie, I'll be calling her Julie during the interview on the show. Hi Julie! Hi everybody! Yay! I'm so excited to have you today and how I love to kick these things off, you know, obviously we're horse lovers listening in, horse book lovers listening in. I always love to hear how my guests got into horses. Can you tell us a little bit about your history with horses, Julie? Well, I've been riding before, since before I can remember. Um, I was lucky enough that my parents, uh, somehow I talked them into getting me pony rides when I was little, you know, the little ones that you, you ride around in a circle and then was a, I was a little bit older. When we went on vacation, they would take me on trail rides. And when I was old enough, they got me lessons at the local barn. Um, so I'd been riding for a really long time. And horses just, they just get in your blood. And, you know, it's passion. So, and they don't go away. Oh, I believe me. I think you just described my growing up with horses and, <laughs> and how it started. And I imagine you had prior horses in your life too. Oh, yes. I had quite a few, yes. They're they're still back in my parents' uh, house in Ohio. Uh, someday, I'm sure they'll I'll get them out here. But yeah, our horses are a big part of growing up as a horse lover. Oh, and yeah. and so uh, today, you are a horse owner. Can you tell I us am. about your furry friends? The horses that I have right now in my life. Uh, Triska is a 13 year old Arabian mare. She's a chestnut, so I've got myself a fiery little redhead. Oh, nice. um, yeah, and she's uh, she's fourteen one hands, and she's she's really strong. I do endurance riding with her, and she can take me fifty miles, and we just go up hills, and she's just she's loved it, just loved it. It's her favorite thing to do is just power down the trail. Oh, that is so cool! Yep. And I think there's a couple others you have to tell us about too. Yep, and then Cavalier is my other horse that I currently have, and he is a. He'll be eight in April, and he's a gelding. Uh, I got him a couple years ago. He's just been through training, and we're bringing him up, and I'm hoping he's going to be my 100-miler. He's a pretty big horse. He's 15'3". He's got big old bones, and uh, he's really good on the trails so far, but he's pretty inexperienced, so we're still kind of seeing how he's going to do and how he's going to take to it, and I'm trying to bring him up real slow so that I don't you know, blow his brain right away. Oh, yeah, I can only imagine. And yeah. Endurance riding. Talk to us a little bit more about the sport of endurance riding and, and how you got into endurance riding. I, you know, you're my first endurance rider on the show, so like I am so curious. Well, it, it's kind of a funny story how I got into it. Um, my first horse, Sabaska, she, um, I was riding with a woman and I fell in love with one of her horses. And she helped me kind of train her. She was, she was barely halter broke, which it was kind of weird circumstance. She was an older mare that they just never did anything with. And by older, I'm talking like 11, so not super old. Mm-hmm. Um, well-bred, but they never trained her for show or anything, which worked out really well for me. Um, and so I fell in love with her while I was working with her and decided to buy her. And 
I had another friend of mine out watching me ride her at one point. I was just working on getting some pointers and stuff. And she's like, oh, man, she moves so big. She would be great at endurance. I'm like, what's endurance? <laughs> and uh, she's like, really long trail rides. I'm like, sounds awesome. Uh, and that's kind of honestly how I got into it. I, a friend mentioned that it was cool. And so I started looking it up. And I wanted to do more trail riding because I hadn't been able to do as much of that when I was younger, not having my own horses. Um, other than on vacations and stuff like that. And so I looked into it and I started doing research and I started training for it. And I, I kind of got into it back in the early 2000s. Um, and then I had to drop out for a while because of life and stuff. But when I got Triska, you know, a couple of years after I had her, I started training her for endurance and got back into it. So I've been back into it for, this will be our fourth season together. So yeah, I just kind of fell into it because my horse was going to be good at it. And Sabasco was, she was amazing on the trail. Um, if I think if I had been able to stay in it with her, um, she probably would have been a hundred mile or two. I am talking about a hundred miles in a day. Uh, that's been kind of my goal since I got into the sport. Um, you have different levels of riding in endurance. You've got your limited distance, which are 30 miles in, or, um, yeah, anything under 50 miles is a limited distance ride which may not sound that short, but for an endurance ride, that's a shorter ride. Uh, we also tend to call them the luxury distance because you can be done, you know, you can go out and you can ride for several hours and be done um, pretty early in the day if you're cruising along. And especially if the weather's not the best, sometimes it's nice to be done a little bit quicker. <laughs> and then you have your endurance rides, which is 50 miles and up. Uh, the longest single day endurance ride is going to be 100 miles. Um, but then you can do like multi-day rides where you ride 50 miles in a day um, and you do it over the course of several days. Um, so they have some that are up to like 250 miles. Wow. Yeah. I mean, endurance riding is amazing. So I heard a couple things that you were saying. So one, you know, a horse that's well suited to endurance riding is going to have like long strides and cover a lot of ground because I'm assuming the goal is to finish in like a fast time is, is that right so you've got a couple different ways that you can do it you can win you can race or you can ride okay. if you're riding you're riding to complete so you just want to get in under the time limit so for a 50 mile ride you have 12 hours hmm. um, for a 100 mile ride you have 24 for a 25 mile ride you have six something like that and um each each individual distance has a time increment in the rule book as to how much time you can spend out on the trail. Um, and this includes hold times. So you're, you're back in camp, resting your horse, making sure they get food. You do vet checks. Um, the, the primary goal is to finish under time with a healthy horse that can be what's called fit to continue. Mm -hmm. So they want your horse to be able to, so you ride a hundred miles, your horse should be able to go 120. Mm. something like that and they want your horse to be looking good at the end they don't want you to ride your horse into the ground that's not what we're all about um it's about the time spent on the trail with the horse and then there are people who ride to ride to win um or ride the top 10 or whatever and they still have to finish with a really sound horse so that's um it's just a slightly different riding style but yeah you want them to cover a lot of ground you want them to just really want to go down the trail that is really cool and then so i i imagine i mean a hundred miles is nothing to sneeze at and then have your horse finish and be healthy and sound and could potentially go another 20 miles so uh, what is your like conditioning regimen like for for yourself even and your horse you know so you're in the best top form to perform to perform an endurance race what you need to do um it takes several years to actually really bring along an endurance horse to to peak condition especially to be doing a hundred mile ride um, or you're retired and you have a lot of time to condition properly. <laughs> Most of us who have other things that we have to do with our lives, it takes a few years because it takes about a year to develop the muscles. Um, it takes about two years to develop the tendons and about three years to, de to really develop the bone structure um, to take the increased um, pounding that we put on and going down the trail. Uh, so it really does take three years to truly develop an equine athlete like that. And you start with what we call a lot of long and slow. So mm. walking and trotting intervals. Um, and you might mix that up with like a shorter ride where you're doing some cantering and then walking. And then a longer ride where you're, you know, up to, you know, maybe 20 miles of walking and trotting. Um, you're going to mix some hill workouts in there, especially if you live in a place like I live in Colorado. 
So we do a lot of mountain rides here. Mm-hmm. And uh, so you, our horses need to be able to go up and down a hill at speed. You have to teach your horse to go down a hill at a trot. Most people don't do that. Um, they have to deal with pretty rocky terrain. Um, so not only is it the conditioning, but it's the training of different types of trails. The horses have to learn how to deal with that and be okay with it. You see things like bikes on the trail and other hikers. And we've seen bear. Oh, my. Um, yeah. <laughs> I haven't seen one recently, but uh, Sabaska and I, we came across a mountain lion one time um, years ago. I mean, it's just all sorts of stuff. Your horse has to, you and your horse have to trust each other. And of course, to get there, you have to build that relationship. So you have to spend hours on the trail together. Um, so it's a lot of time in the saddle, uh, a lot of time doing groundwork and making sure that you and your horse work really well together. Um, and yeah, once you get to the point where your horse is well conditioned, then you start riding hard. You know, you mm. do a hard 20 miles um, at a trot and a canter. And you don't usually, in a training ride, you don't usually go too much over 20 miles because you can do that repeatedly over a period of time and build them up to where they can do a 50 pretty easily. And the nice thing about horses is they keep their condition way better than human does. Like right now, if I went out and did a 30-mile endurance ride, I might cry a little bit. (laughs) My horse would be completely fine with it um, because the winter has been pretty hard, so we haven't had as much trail time as we normally do. Um, In the spring... Uh, we definitely work on building ourselves back up to uh, getting on the trail. And a lot of my conditioning is just making sure I spend a lot of time in the saddle um, as much as I can. Uh, you know, I try, you know, I want to eat what I want to eat, but I try and, you know, I, I cut some things out, like the super sugary breakfast cereal and stuff like that. I switched to eggs and toast and you know, just little things that I could do to make sure that I didn't carry too much extra weight. Cause I'm, I'm a, Right now, I ride in the heavyweight category, so they have different weight categories. Uh, Featherlight is your super tiny men and women who weigh like, I don't know, 100 pounds. Mm. I'm never going to weigh 100 pounds. <laughs> um, and then um, then you've got your lightweights, your middleweights, and I'm about 10 pounds off from being in the middleweight category. And then you've got your heavyweights, and that includes your tack. So. Mm. Um, if I had a super light saddle, which my my saddle isn't very heavy, but it's not one of the super light ones. Um, they're very expensive, and I don't have one yet. <laughs> uh, someday. It's a dream. Um, puts me into the slightly heavier category. So I try and do what I can to keep excess weight off. That is so interesting. I mean, clearly you're good at it, too, because I'm looking over your shoulder. You're there in your office. I, I, a, I see a saddle, which I spotted immediately, but I see some ribbons up there above your head, too. Those are actually um, for my dogs. <laughs> so um, you show dogs, too. Cool. I, have a border, I have border collies, uh-huh. and um, those are Kira's herding ribbons. Mm. She's, uh, she's got quite a few ribbons and titles from um, different, different herding uh, events we've gone to. Wow, that is so cool. So, I mean, you're like cowgirl. You're like a cowgirl there. You're like raising yeah. herding dogs. And I mean, I, I could go down a huge rabbit hole here and ask you <laughs> a thousand questions about training a dog for herding. Maybe we'll save that for a, another uh, another episode, unless you can give us like a quick, like how you got into that and a quick like. Well, the how I got into that is very similar to how I got into endurance. I got a border collie. And I said, you know, I'm getting a border collie, and I got my border collie to keep up with my horse on the trail. Uh, Kira, my my older dog, she used to trail ride with us all the time, and um, you know, she'd go on 20 mile trail rides and stuff like that too, as long as it wasn't too hot. Mm-hmm. And even to this day, um, she's almost 10 now, but she's super fit. Um, and every time the vets listen to her heart, they're like, oh, God, her heart is amazing because she used to do all this running with us. And I was like, well, I've got a border collie. I've got to put her on sheep at least once in her life because she's from herding, um, from working lines and as a border collie should be. So I took her up and uh, I found a place where I could put her on sheep and she just loved it so much. She's she like having so much fun. And then she came back over to me and she's like, did you see what I did? Oh my God. Oh my God. <laughs> so um, I now have my own sheep. Um, <laughs> you have lots of furry friends. <laughs> yeah. Guilty. I, I kind of like having the, the hobby farm as it were. So. Oh, that is how I got into herding too, is because of Kira. What what I really love about what you've shared with me so far is that 
And I really believe like this is how life works. Like these opportunities kind of show up and that lead you in a certain direction. And you stepped into those things. You stepped into endurance riding, you stepped into your horses or your dog's natural love of hurting. And it kind of created the life that you're living now, which is, which is really cool. And it's, it's pretty amazing. I love it. Oh, wow. Sounds like a dream life, which leads us to the next part of your dream life. You also write horse books. So is there like another magical story about how writing occurred in your life? Uh, you know, kind of. So I got a couple stories about how I started writing and then how I started writing my horse books. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, obviously, I've been into horses my whole life. So that it kind of flowed naturally into writing horse fiction. But I've always been into sci-fi and fantasy, always loved it. Um, even when I was younger in elementary school and stuff, I would always write little stories. And when we had those as writing assignments, um, you know, and then I was writing Nancy Drew knockoffs because that's what I was reading. Cause I was in <laughs> elementary school. It was great. Um, you know, the mystery of the 99 steps or whatever, you know, but it was always my favorite assignments when we would, would write the books and then the PTO people would bind it for us and all that. That's, um, and then when I was in the sixth grade, my sixth grade reading teacher, Mrs. Fox, was like, I think you're going to be an author someday because you just love to read so much and you write so well. And I'm like, no, authors are like these godlike beings on other planets. They're not real people. <laughs> what are you talking about? No. Um, so she was right. <laughs> I turned into an author. Um, and uh, I write science fiction and fantasy because that's what I love. Uh, and then. You know, out with Sabasca, um, riding on the trails, I just started, we just started kind of writing these stories together. We came up, you know, this imagination, you know, hey, Sabasca feels like, it feels like she's transporting me to other worlds. Mm. Especially when I was really just first getting into trail riding in the Rocky Mountains. Because I'm from Ohio, um, or I grew up in Ohio anyway. And I moved out to Colorado for college. And so being able to trail ride in these mountains was it was just like a dream come true oh, yeah. on my own horse and just discovering what trail riding really was, um, things like that. And it felt like we were in just totally different world. Um, and it was very different from what I grew up with. So, mm-hmm. you know, learning the mountains and everything has been very, very amazing. Um, and yeah, so I decided to write fiction about a horse that transports her rider into another world. You, that's awesome. So I know you have written a lot of books. How many horse books? have you written so far okay so strictly horse books full-length novels i have to count one two three four five six one of them is not quite uh, is in the editing process right now will be published a couple of months oh very um, cool so i have five that are published right now and then i have you know some various short stories and stuff like that that, that is specifically horse. yeah that is cool and you and you also that was you know another question i have there to you also write outside of horse books as well do you, so hold up your five horse books that you have there for the people watching on youtube so they can see your awesome covers and tell us a little bit about because it's two different series is that right yeah so this is sabaska's tale and this is sabaska's quest these are the first two that um sabaska helped me write basically mm-hmm. and unfortunately she's since passed but um uh, you know, she's really kind of been immortalized in these books, and this series is ongoing. Um, I haven't finished it yet. So they're about a modern-day teen who gets transported to other worlds on her grandmother's favorite horse after her grandmother dies in mysterious circumstances, and she is helping sell the horses on her grandmother's farm. And then it turns out that one of her grandmother's horses isn't actually a horse. They're being called a traveler, and they're at war with another race of humans who's trying to enslave them. So the travelers enlist humans to help them and fight this war. So it's about the modern day war. Saga and Jarl and Saga's War, which is the one that I finished and it's in edits right now, are a offshoot series of the modern modern um, books about the origins of the war between the travelers and the race of humans who are trying to enslave them. So this is an offshoot trilogy that kind of takes place a few hundred years prior to the modern trilogy, but feeds directly into the end of um, Sabaska's quest. And after Sabaska's quest, these characters actually stay in play in the modern times and 
join the adventure to try and actually finish the war and make it stop. So that's the Traveler series. That's my super fantasy series. And then I have a standalone uh, called Into the West. And it was originally written as a bunch of periodic stories that we published over the course of a few months with a different publisher I was with at one point. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we took all the stories and I put it into one, into a novel, and cleaned it up a lot. This was one of my earlier writing endeavors, so it needed a lot of editing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's pretty good now, though. I, a lot of people tell me they really like it. <laughs> and it's about a modern American teen who, she's kind of a East Coast teen. She likes mall. She's, she likes you know, pretty things, things that sparkle. And she's also a horse girl. She's used to riding English. She rides an English horse farm, does a lot of stuff like that. And her dad takes a transfer to basically ghost town, Arizona. He's a geologist. So My town. Cult- yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, total culture shock. Totally different style of riding. Her dad does know the owner of one of the local ranches, and they let her ride one of their retired cow horses. So... Now she's riding a quarter horse instead of uh, a thoroughbred, and she's working on a ranch. She's ride, riding in the western saddle. They she does embrace the whole cowgirl and training sort of thing, mm-hmm. and then she finds a time portal and goes back in time, and has to save the ranch from a water rights war back in you know like the late eighteen hundreds or something like that, as I recall. And of course, there's cute cowboy, but she has to save the cowboy a lot. He doesn't really save her too much. She saves him a ton. Nice, uh, powerful, powerful equestrian woman. I like it. <laughs> and some of it um, is about her exploring a brand new environment. She's learning about the desert. Um, you know, totally just different sort of riding, different things like that. And learning to accept a new reality and really embrace it. And then, of course, going back in time is pretty cool. Too, so. Well, that is super cool. And then, and then you do write outside of the equestrian world, too. So. How many other books outside of horse books have you written? Oh, um, let's see, novels, 10 or 11. This is amazing. That is a lot of books, lady. I'm like so impressed. <laughs> I aspire to write that many books. I, I've, I've squeezed out three, three book babies, which, you know, I think is pretty good. But yeah, I mean, that's, ama- that's amazing. So you've been, how long, how many years have you been, been writing? I have been professionally published for 10 years. 10 years. So so you're writing more than one book a year. Yes. Okay. What is the secret? How on earth do you get that many books written and train for endurance writings and show your dogs and, you know, do all the other things that life calls upon? My social life involves my animals. So if you are one of my horseback riding friends or one of my dog friends, I may not see you very often. I love you. I'll say hi on Facebook and sorry. Mm-hmm. that's pretty much how I do it I don't have much social life I don't watch very much TV um, I should say I do have a social life I do interact with my friends quite a bit it's just that the people that I hang out with the most are the ones that are riding horses with me mm-hmm. and doing the dog stuff with me mm-hmm. uh, and I, I just stopped watching a lot of TV uh, I don't follow a lot of the series even though I would love to watch them they've got to be kind of short so that I can stay on top of it it's got to be on Netflix Usually when I have time to watch TV, it's because I'm binge-watching it. Mm-hmm. Um, or, I, or I check a little bit of a series with my significant other and we watch a show every now and again and watch movies. And I just focus on it. I I am currently, I'm, I'm currently trying to go full-time. Mm. And I'm, you know, it's, it's a little bit of a, a push, but my publisher and I are working on a plan and write full time, but that means that they have to write like six books a year, because when you're small press, independently published, whatever, and I'm I'm with a small press and I do a little bit of self publishing, you don't get the big advances or whatever. It depends on sales and mm. some of the markets that you can actually make some really good money in. You have to put out a lot of books. So some of it's just motivation. For mm-hmm. a while, I didn't write a whole lot. I was working more on writing my horses and doing stuff with my dogs and working the day job and whatever. But I finally just got to the point where I'm like, I'm going to do it. I need to try. Well, it sounds like you're already hugely successful. And, and what I'm really hearing is you prioritized your writing career and your, and your dream of making your living through your writing. And that's what it takes. I mean, it, it really, it takes that dedication. It takes 
sitting down at your computer every day. It takes, you know, deciding what in your life to, you know, to focus on and, and what, what can go to the side for a while while you're committing to, to this creative career. I'm, I mean, good on you. I, that's fabulous. And, and that's what it takes. It really does. It takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of time behind the computer. It does. You have to have your butt in the chair and your fingers on the keyboard for hours sometimes. There are days where I spend most of my day at my keyboard mm-hmm. enough to take, take breaks and do stuff with the dogs and things like that. And I'm definitely mm-hmm. a little bit more productive in the winter because you know, bad weather. This begs the question, do you work on multiple projects like at a time or do you choose one project in a single genre and run with it? Because you're writing across genre too. So like, how do you, how do you do that? In an ideal world, I think I would be able to just focus on one project at once, but I don't have time to do that. Mm. If I want to be successful as a you know mid-sized press author, as opposed to you know the big press with the big advances and stuff like that, I have to work on multiple projects at once. I'm writing I'm writing some paranormal romance right now. I'm working on Saga's War. I'll be doing edits on that in the next month or so. Um, I'm working on edits from the first book in the series. In, in another series, and I've got edits on a uh, magic realism series that I write with a co-writer, and those edits are waiting because that's a little bit lower on the priority list, but I just have to set the priorities. It's like, okay, what do you do next? Mm. That's what I have to work on. But there is some of the whole, okay, I am really on fire with this story right now, and I'm just going to run with it. Spend a few days really just getting out the words and whatever. Once I've done that, then I, it does allow me to kind of go focus on something else. And sometimes it is nice to be able to take a quick break from one project, especially if you did just spend the last few days writing ridiculous amounts of words in it. Sometimes it's nice to take a little bit of a break and go work on editing. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And and I'm a lot like that too. Like, what, you know, I'm, I follow the muse, right? So, like, I work on what, like, I feel like, I don't know, it's kind of weird to say this, but, like, my soul is calling me forward on a particular story or project and so like that's where my energy wants to go so I tend to follow it It sounds like you're similar um although you do have you know deadlines and priorities but when it comes to the story you kind of follow your muse is that right yeah when I am working on especially when I'm working on multiple long projects the story that's calling to me is the one that's going to get most of my attention Mm. but I do have to keep in mind the deadline so if it's something I really do have a deadline on a certain piece Sometimes I have to put down the thing that I really want to work on and work on the other piece. Mm-hmm. The nice thing with that is, is by the time I get back to it, I'm just dying to write. Yeah. And then the words just kind of explode. And that's pretty <laughs> nice, too. That's the best feeling in the world when you're like, I like, I like to call it flow, when you're just like in it. And it's like almost like you're not even there yeah. when the story is coming, coming for you. I love that feeling. You get, sometimes you can get you know, 10,000 or more words in a day, and it's pretty amazing. Well, you can get. I, I'm a little. I'm a little jealous. Ten thousand words a day. That's amazing. That's like you know most it's, novels. Like, are your novels about eighty thousand words long? I mean, that's like yeah, sixty to eighty. Yeah. If you if you can do that in a day, you can get a book written in a first draft anyway in eight days. That would. That's incredible. <laughs> My last novel that I wrote, I wrote in twenty days, and I didn't write every day because I was still working day job stuff. And tap your brain. I'm just saying, like, can can I you know clone some of these genes that help you? Uh, push these books out so quick that's a, that's amazing some of it is discipline and practice mm. because i i have forced myself to get to the point where i can sometimes not always but i can just sit down and start working on a project sometimes i have to kind of work myself into it you know reread a little bit things like that mm-hmm. some of it, it's kind of like exercise if you stay in the habit it becomes a lot easier mm. and even on days when you're struggling if you can if I can just get something like 500 words, then that's better than nothing at all. And then I can go work on edits and it's still progress. And you can get a novel done in a reasonable amount of time, even if you just were write 500 to 1,000 words a day. Yeah, that's great advice. Just, you know, even when you're, you know, my favorite quote, and I think I've said it a couple of times on the show is Stephen King always says the hardest moment is just before you start in his book on writing. And that couldn't be more true. Like once you actually, and you're right, it's discipline. It's like exercise. It's like, this is something I have to do, something I want to do. It's good for my health and just sitting down and, and doing it. And then once you start, it just sort of magically starts happening. Is that your experience also? 
it really is. Once you once you get into the flow and you get more experience with being in the flow and you train your you're training your brain mm. into the flow more quickly. And you're training your brain to get into that mindset. And once you train yourself to get into that mindset, you just then work on getting into the mindset more quickly and more easily. And I won't lie, there are days where it's like I stare at the screen for three hours and like gluing on myself because I can't make the words come. Uh, but, you know, then sometimes you have to recognize when you do have to step away and go do something else, read a book or watch a movie or go out and do stuff with the animals if the weather um, is good. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you got to step away too. And that the thing about being an author is you're always working because your mind is always processing something that you've been working on. So even other activities can be conducive to writing and you have to give yourself a rest sometimes too. Yeah, that, I mean, that that's right. And that's, that's really fantastic advice. So given how much you have going on around your writing, and then, you know, your animals, like, do you have a particular way you structure your day that you've found um, works best? Or do you just kind of just sit and go? <laughs> In the winter, I tend to write earlier in the day and then try to take advantage of the nice weather in the afternoon. Mm. In the summer, I tend to try and take advantage of the cooler weather and do stuff outside with the animals. And then in the afternoon and evening, I'll get my writing in. Some days I just sit down and write because I've got to get stuff done and I just spend the whole day at the computer. Some days I just go ride. Mm. Um, An ideal day, though, I would spend several hours at my computer and several hours outside doing. That's a good balance. I mean, that's great. You're like being creative and getting your creative work done, but then you're also allowing yourself the space to like be outside and get some fresh air and get stimulated by the animals. I I, I think that's nice. So that's, it's an important thing is to have balance yeah. in the career because I know a lot of small businesses, because when you are an author, you, you are a small business, you know, a lot of small business owners, uh, you know, they work constantly and, and just never stop and never put it down, but you need those opportunities to recharge so you can produce your very best work. So that sounds like a good balance. Now you mentioned your, your, you are working with a small press. So would you tell us a little bit about, about the press and then how your relationship with them sort of came together? Because you mentioned you are a hybrid and a lot of authors are kind of looking at this route, which is, independently publishing some titles and then working, you know, with a, a, a traditional publisher on other projects. So, so how did your relationship with this press begin? The publishers um, who I work with now, they decided to form their own small press. And I asked if I could work with them as an author, um, basically by submitting a story to them, like, hey, I would like to submit this to you. What do you guys think? And they're like, okay. <laughs> so I've been working with them um, as a small press from the, almost since they got started. And they do a really good job. They're very professional. They do uh, the formatting, the cover art. They do some advertisement promotion. They help you stay on top of promotional topics, things like that. They actually probably do more than a lot of big presses do Mm. uh, because there's more personal touch there. And all the authors I know of that work with them seem to really enjoy working with them. So they're they're a small to medium-sized press right now. And they do a lot of things for me which is nice, and you know, of course they get some of my royalties, and that's great, and it works out really well. Uh, I don't have an agent, maybe someday, we'll see. Uh, and I I would still like to, at some point, get a story or something with a big press, because I mean, that's always the thing, you want the mass market to be back, and, and Barnes & Noble, and whatever, but sure. uh, these days, it's really tough. Uh, agents are very selective, almost strangely selective, it's almost impossible to get one. And yeah, people do. But you almost can't just go into getting an agent anymore. You have to have like an experience. To that point, I, you know, I think it's the publishing industry is becoming a little bit like how the music industry pivoted a little bit with, you know, they went looking for and that already had a brand in a following and had had some success and then sign them to the big record deals and contracts. I think it's starting to turn that way with uh, the publishing industry. Do, would you agree with that? I really think it is. Uh, the advent of CreateSpace, mm. and now, of course, it's Kindle Direct Publishing, and a few of the other small, few of the other uh, 
print on demand. There we go. That's what I was looking for. Print on demand facilities. And then um, Ingram allowing people to upload stuff to them now that weren't weren't just uh, big presses and stuff really allowed the small presses to grow mm-hmm. and be a viable thing as opposed to what it used to be with vanity presses where you had to pay a lot of money and stuff. Now you can have a small press publisher that operates exactly in the same traditional press model. They just don't have the print runs. And with the print runs is where you run into the risk of, uh, you know, it costs you more money than the book actually makes and stuff like that. So with the print-on-demand, it allows these smaller presses to really take a chance on authors that are either writing things that aren't mainstream enough or are new voices or have a different voice that um, they otherwise wouldn't take a chance on. So it's been really great in that regard. And then the agents and big press start to see these authors having these successes and then they go looking for them. Mm-hmm. There are even some self-published authors who have had some amazing successes that big presses have signed. Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, it, this might not be everyone's cup of tea, but Fifty Shades of Grey was an uh, yeah. ind- independently published book before it got picked up to a, a big publisher and then got turned into a movie. So there's a lot of possibility uh, now. So what I, what I heard you saying about working with the small press that you're working with is they take some things off your plate that you wouldn't... you. you don't have to deal with like they provide the editors the book cover design the formatting the you know uploading it to the distribution channels and then they also i imagine help you reach readers is is that right so so what are some of the ways that they're they you know step in and and help you reach your readers um they they keep an eye on the various marketing trends and the various types of book promotion sites, uh, Facebook pages that allow promotion, uh, things like Book Barbarian, BookBub, some of the other sites where you can pay a little bit to advertise. Mm. They'll put out advertisements. Uh, they, they do, you can do Amazon advertisements, things like that. And they'll do promotions. They'll remind me when they're doing promotions so that I can help promote the promotions. Like, Julie, come out of your cave and be social for a minute. <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> Interact with my readers, you know, that sort of thing. And then uh, they do expect me to do my share, too. But they help me figure out what I need to do to be successful, especially the way things are, um, the way promotion changes so much these days with social media and stuff like that. Well, that's helpful, you know, that that they help you in that regard, because it does take, you know, it takes time to research and understand where the trends are heading. And that takes some of that off of your plate. So you can then focus on on your writing, which is most important for for you right now, because this is what you're focused on. So that's, that's very helpful. And then, you know, so, and for them to do all those things that they do for you, they do take a portion of your earnings from your royalties is, are you comfortable sharing like what your split with them looks like? And, and did you sign a contract? Yeah, we have a contract, of course. Um, every book they have is pretty standard contract. It's for like four years. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm trying to think most traditional presses, you get a really small percentage, but then they give you that big upfront advance. Mm-hmm. You get a much larger percentage of uh, of your royalties when you're going with a smaller press than you should because that's, they don't give you the big advance. Some of them still do give an advance, but mm-hmm. so I get a pretty fair amount, and they take a they they take a pretty reasonable amount, and it works out really well. Well, good. Well, I'm happy to hear you're happy with that, and it, it makes me happy to hear that there's small presses out there that because uh, you know a lot of um, authors that I talk to, some of the things that they don't like is that they have to market themselves and figure all this stuff out and when they just rather be writing. But it, I still think it's interesting to hear you say that they do have the expectation still that you're interacting with your readers and marketing yourself, but they take some of that off your plate so you can focus on your writing. And it benefits them for me to be writing lots of books. So, and it benefits me for it too. So it's a pretty win-win situation. For sure. I, I love that. And uh, while I was galloping around your website, looking, you know, checking out information and looking at um, how to build your interview questions, I found that you are a member of the Horror Writers Association, Science Fiction Writers of America, and the Dog Writers of America Association, and also the editor for Story Emporium Fiction Magazine, which is a lot of organizations to be involved in on top of all the, the stuff that you're doing there. 
Uh, would you talk to us a little bit about the value for an author of belonging to groups and, and doing things like editing a, a fiction magazine? Can you talk a little bit about what value you found in, in being part of those things? So Dog Writers Association, I kind of joined because it sounded awesome. It no does sound of- awesome. <laughs> we need a Horse Writers Association. <laughs> and you actually get some press privileges with Dog Writers Association. So uh, that's kind of interesting. But it's it's kind of a side membership. It was just kind of a this kind of cool sort of thing. Because I write books about border collies that mm-hmm. like ghosts and things like that. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the many things that I did. SIFWA, uh, the Science Fiction Writers of America, and HWA, they organize events so that you can interact with other authors, agents. There's a lot of networking opportunities. They have resources on their websites. Uh, they do newsletters that members can say, hey, I've got this thing coming out. And other members can see that. So that's pretty good. Some contacts within the industry as far as agents and things like that. They also provide some protections for authors, some spotlights of things that are going on in the industry. Sometimes they'll let everyone know. They have a lot of benefits for the authors. I think they even have some um, protections. You know, there's some scholarships and stuff out there if you end up in a financial hardship or mm-hmm. whatever. If you've been a long-established member, um, there's qualifications and stuff. But they've got a lot of things out there, resources for authors, uh, connections to uh, lawyers and whatnot who know how to work with authors, um, contract lawyers, things like that, that you can make connections with. So they have a membership with CIFLA, and they qualify under certain, certain um, well, use, use the same word, qualifications. And you know that they're probably going to be a reasonable person to work with. So they, they can connect people in those regards as well. And then they have they have meetings at conventions and stuff. Oh, that's and great. Actually, in the Horror Writers Association, the uh, Colorado Springs chapter is having a women in horror event next week over Valentine's Day, and I'm actually going down to Colorado Springs for that. So I'll do a reading, and I'll be there, and I'll talk to people, and they'll have some like books for sale and stuff. So you know, things like that. Very cool. So you know, connections, resources, opportunities to go to conferences, and also you know, attend readings, both local and national. So being a member of these organizations is is really cool. So, a couple questions about you know your your life as an author. We've talked a lot about it, but for for you, what has been the hardest part of being an author? And then, like on the flip side, what what's the very best part for you about being an author? The hardest part of being an author uh, sometimes is just staying motivated. Mm-hmm. But then I have to remind myself that this is what I want to do. I would rather write books and be and ride my horses and play with my dogs than go to a day job if I can if I can avoid it. So I have mm-hmm. to stay focused. Dealing with some of the rejection, that's hands down the hardest part of being an author is dealing with you've got this great story. People who know what they're talking about have told you it's a great story and you're trying to get an agent and all the agents like don't even reply. Yeah. Like, okay. That's part of why I started doing some self publishing myself and people are buying it and they tell me I like it and they come back for more so apparently it doesn't suck mm-hmm. um, but staying staying motivated and dealing with rejection is, is really probably the hardest part of being an author and being motivated when yeah, you're in charge of your own time so you have to be self-motivated as well and that's, that's not so hard for me anymore it used to be a struggle but that's pretty easy now but I'm used to it because you've trained yourself not only for endurance writing, but the endurance of an author career and what it takes. So, you know, you, you put in your, your exercise and you trained yourself. So that's great. And then... I don't know the best part of being an author. Uh, I just love creating things. And then occasionally you get those, those really cool stories where someone comes up to you and tells you how their book touched them. And it's like, oh, so great. It is the best feeling when when someone has been touched by something that you created. I mean, there there's no feeling exactly like that, and you know, it's like a gift. It's like a gift to other people that came somewhere out of your brain. You know, it's pretty incredible. So, you know, I I like this question. It what is one common myth about our profession or field that you'd love to debunk? Uh, they like to say, write what you know. I've never been on a spaceship before, but I write a pretty good sci-fi, so 
what you do is you take the elements of what you know and break them down into their base parts. Just as an example, I know a lot about endurance riding. I'm no expert, but I know a fair bit about it. I've been doing it for a while. I know what it takes to train a horse. I know what it takes to ride and ride in the mountains, ride in extreme conditions. I don't know anything about what it takes to ride a dinosaur, but I can guess based on my experience with horses. And I am writing, working on a novel slowly about um, a person who does uh, dinosaur racing. Oh, that sounds fun. <laughs> I love in a, that. It's in, it's in a future dystopia, and um, it's, you know, the government's super controlling and you know, a lot of stuff like that. So she rides in endurance races on dinosaurs, and, you know, there's a lot of other stuff. I don't, I've never been on a dinosaur before, but I, I can write the book because I know some of the base elements. I've never lived in a dystopia that extreme. I hope I never do. But I can imagine what it would be like to be controlled like that. And so they say write with what you know. And yes, you should know about what you're writing. But you don't have to be an expert. Mm. You don't have to you know, stick to writing you know, horse books because you know a lot about horses. You can branch out and do a lot of other stuff because there's a lot of base elements there that you know about if you just expand it in a different direction. I love that. That is super awesome advice and so, so very true. So, you know, what, this is kind of a question for aspiring authors or, you know, what do you wish you had known when you had started out on your journey as an author? Um, what I wish I had known when I started out is that first drafts can suck. It is okay for your first draft to be awful. That's what revisions are for. Mm. And it's probably not as awful as you think it is. It, it's just hard because it's not going to be polished. And some of my novels come out cleaner than others when I write them. It depends. The one I'm writing about the, the dinosaurs and the future dystopia, it's a little rough. But I have a lot of good notes and I'll do a lot of edits on it before I submit it to the publisher. Whereas the one I just wrote over the last 20 days over Christmas, it came out pretty clean. I mean, it still needs edits, but it doesn't need nearly the edits that my other one does. But it was flowing really well. So I still want to write this other story, even though I'm kind of having to force the words out a little bit. Mm-hmm. I just had to give myself permission to kind of suck on my first draft. Mm-hmm. And you just need to know that that's okay. Even Stephen King, I think he says it in his book on writing that you mentioned earlier, that revisions are where it's at. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the most important thing is getting words on the page. And, you know, you can't do anything until you have a manuscript or something written. And then, you know, once you've got it down, I think in the book on writing, Stephen King says he writes his first draft and then he like throws it in a drawer for like a month to like let it breathe. And then he goes back to it and starts the process of revisions. And, and you're right, you can make, you can make something that came out kind of hiccupy, really wonderful in the revision process. It's just getting the words on the page and having somewhere to start. Right. And I think that's what you're getting at. You can't revise a blank page. That's right. You may as well get some words out and you can make it better later. Honestly, sometimes if you have to write a novel and get the ideas formed and then rewrite it, that's okay too. Mm-hmm. Right, because that's the first draft. That's the first step in the process is just getting the words on the page. I love that. And then, you know, what, I mean, you've talked about so many things you're curious about, like the the story where the dinosaurs, your people are writing dinosaurs and, you know, your, your journey as uh, being a self-sustained author, writing books for a living and doing that. What else, like what's on the horizon? What are you curious about? What are you looking at, you know, kind of beyond the scope of what you're working on right now? Besides just my writing, my my biggest curiosity, my biggest step, my biggest next almost worry, uh, you know, is how is Cavalier going to do in endurance? Mm. I really, really want him to be my 100 miler. But if he's not mentally suited to it, if I can't bring him up mentally, he'll never do it. Physically, mm-hmm. he'll be fine. Mm-hmm. But there's a big mental game for the horses and the people when you start going those extreme distances. Mm-hmm. And I think he's got it mentally, but he doesn't He doesn't have the same on fire, let's get it done, let's go attitude that my marriage had had, that you, uh, you know, that I've had. He's a different sort of horse. And... I think I think he'll be great once he gets it, but that's why I want to be so careful bringing him along. I don't want to burn him out, and I don't want to push him too hard, too fast, because I think that will turn him off to it. I think 
keep the horse if you decide that this is just a lot of work and I don't care and I don't want to do it. Mm. But if I bring him on slowly enough, I think he'll grow to love it because he does like trail riding. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's that's one of the biggest things on my mind is every time I take him out, I'm like, God, I hope we can make him into a hundred mile. Because <laughs> I've been dreaming about this for years. But if if it's not him, then it won't be him. And I'll just ride him on shorter distances and I'll start looking for my next horse eventually when, once I get to that point and start looking for a hundred mile rider. That's um, really yeah, that's but that's really responsible horse ownership, you know, like understanding that horses have their own personalities and and you're giving him a job that you might not yet know if he's suited to. And it's that's really responsible horse ownership because you're not forcing, you know, uh, a square into a circle. You're giving him time to acclimate and you're going slowly. And then you also are very reasonable in the fact that maybe he won't like it and and you'll make a decision then but you know right now you're focused on the dream and you're bringing him up the way you should and and you're letting time tell and i I think that's really responsible sounds like the future is bright for for you and your pony so you know julie i've had such an amazing time talking with you today and you have provided like such a wealth of information for you know authors aspiring authors people that love your books who want to know more about you thank you so much for being on the show today can you tell listeners where they can find you and your books my books are all available on amazon many of them are kindle unlimited if you're a kindle unlimited person uh, just search for ja campbell and all my stuff i have a website it's uh, writerjacampbell.com, mm-hmm. and that's writer with a W, not writing like a horse. I'm on Facebook. Uh, J.A. Campbell Fantasy Author is my my Facebook page. I'll link to all those places in your show notes so people can get to quickly and easily and find your books. And uh, I'll share some pictures of you and your ponies and the covers of your books for people that want more information. And Julie, again, thank you for the gift of your time. I I love supporting other authors, and and I love it when authors partner up and unite. So so thank you for doing that with me today. Absolutely. Thanks for joining us this week on the Equestrian Author Spotlight Podcast. I hope you enjoy these Q&A sessions with wonderful equine authors who love all things horses and writing, just like me. Visit my website, carlycadecreative.com, where you can read the show notes. And make sure you never miss a show by clicking the subscribe button now. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you so much for your support. Want a free guide to secrets of horse book authors? Gallop over to carlycadecreative.com forward slash wisdom to have author advice delivered instantly to your inbox. If you are an author who writes about horses and would like to be spotlighted, please let me know. Visit my contact page at carlycadecreative.com to fill out a request. I'd be happy to have you on the show too. Thank you for tuning in to the Equestrian Author Spotlight Podcast. See you next time. I'm your host, Carly Cade. Creative writing makes my spurs jingle.